Well, it's my honor and my privilege to be your speaker this afternoon, your third speaker. For those of you who may not know me, my name is Caleb Leonard, and I'm from the congregation in Huntington, West Virginia. As a young man, and as I believe the youngest speaker at this study, I want to say first of all that I'm humbled by the opportunity to stand before you and present a topic in front of many of the men who have taught me the Bible over the years. I'm not going to pretend to know everything about this topic, but I will do my best to present something thought-provoking at the very least. I've been asked to continue the study that Brother Marcus and Brother Jason have already begun, and I will be addressing 1 Corinthians chapter 14. In chapter 12, as I understand it, Paul begins a new discussion on the theme of spiritual gifts, as indicated by verse 1. And for the next three chapters, he will nearly exhaust the subject, and I'm not going to rehash all of what was said before me, but I will give a brief summary of the context leading up to this point. In chapter 12, Paul begins by giving the Corinthian brethren an excuse of sorts when he says in verse 2, and I'll be reading from the New King James Version throughout this presentation unless otherwise stated, You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols however you were led. According to Paul, these Christians were unfamiliar with the finer workings of the Spirit of God because of their background in paganism. However, their ignorance was not to be excused, but rather corrected by the true doctrine of spiritual gifts, which he now sets out to explain. In the rest of chapter 12, Paul looks at two sides of the same coin, if you will. First, in verses 4 through 11, he notices how there is a diversity of persons in the Godhead. In other words, there are three distinct persons in the Trinity, and yet those three persons are unified in one being. This implies that even in the church, which is unified by its very nature, there can and should be diverse roles that the members of it can fulfill. It would pr profit nothing in his words, in Paul's words, if all were apostles or all were prophets, because the church would then be missing the other vitally important roles. The second half of that chapter, which begins in verse 12, emphasizes the other side of that coin, namely that even in our diverse roles, we are still to be united in, upon certain principles. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. In my estimation, chapter 12 comprises the first two sections of the overarching theme of spiritual gifts. And the third section begins at the end of chapter 12 and continues into chapter 13. Verse 31b of chapter 12 says, And yet I show you a more excellent way. Now beginning in chapter 13, Paul takes a moment, and we may even put this whole chapter as a parenthesis in his argumentation, to announce to the early church that these miraculous manifestations of the Spirit will not always be. They are in part and they are passing away, but when that which is perfect or completed has come, the partial will be no more. And I believe that to be talking about the completed New Testament canon, and I would like to say amen to everything that our brother Jason said in his presentation. There are some who may disagree with that position, but without taking the time to discuss it in greater detail, we're going to proceed in this study under that assumption. After chapter 13 has concluded, Paul, having explained that, first of all, spiritual gifts are not to divide the assembly or the church, 
but rather to build it up in the absence of the completed New Testament canon, and two, that when that perfect and finished scripture has come, the miraculous gifts will pass away, he now embarks on a new section where he will describe the proper use and function of these gifts, especially in the assembly of the church, until the time when they are no longer in this world. It's important to understand that while Paul will intersperse statements throughout this chapter that can help us to understand proper order and function of modern assemblies of the church, and it seems to me especially towards the end of this chapter, we find much uh, of this kind of material. That's not his primary purpose. And that being the case, I'm going to focus the majority of my time uh, on the early Christian assemblies in particular and how they were instructed to use their miraculous gifts during those gatherings. Also, in connection with this, I'd like to take a moment and emphasize the importance of this study, not just chapter 14, but chapters 12 through 14. According to the last available data, the fastest growing denomination of, the Christ of Christianity in this world is the charismatic movement. This movement, as those who are familiar with it surely know, is founded upon a fundamental misunderstanding of miracles and of these three chapters in 1 Corinthians in particular. This means that even though we may have had little interaction with these false doctrines in the past, it's unlikely that we will avoid them in the future. Normally I don't recommend a whole lot of what uh, John MacArthur writes or says because he is an ardent Calvinist, but he has done much work over the years in dealing with the charismatic and Pentecostal perspectives and interpretations of the Bible. And he wrote in his analysis of this section, No area of biblical doctrine has been more misunderstood and abused, even within evangelicalism, than that of spiritual gifts. More than likely, we as Christians are going to face misunderstandings about spiritual gifts and about the Holy Spirit increasingly over the next few decades. And so I want to thank those who organized this study and these topics for their foresight in that. As we mentioned previously, this is a rather long chapter. And if I were to exhaust each individual verse, we'd probably be here all night. So instead, we're going to break this study up into several larger and hopefully more digestible parts. First, we're going to try our best to summarize this entire chapter as best as possible. Then we want to take a closer look at a few of the key terms that Paul will provide or that Paul will use and that will provide a working framework, I think, in which to interpret or to better interpret this chapter. And then after that, we'll do our best to exegete the majority of the material without getting too bogged down in each individual statement. At the beginning, we want to look first at a big picture view, or at least, at the very least, an outline of this chapter. The outline that I uh, will suggest is just that, as a suggestion, and this may be open to some scrutiny, but I found this to be the most helpful in dividing the material. The first section covers verses 1 through 5. This section is what we will call section A. Describes the various advantages, disadvantages, and general differences between the miraculous gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. Section B discusses the necessity and the reason behind the interpretation of tongues in the assembly. Section C talks about the purpose of tongues in the first place. And section D generally talks about the need for order and how to attain order in the church. And as you may notice, this outline is supported by the paragraph structure 
and the headings in several of our modern translations such as the New King James Version, NASB, ESV and others. Hopefully we'll have time to go through this entire chapter, but I doubt that will happen. So we're going to make it our goal to at least finish the first 25 verses. First, let's define a few of the terms in Paul's vocabulary. Number one, what is a spiritual gift? Well, it seems to me to be important in the context that Paul is discussing miraculous abilities that were given to individuals by the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands by an apostle. There are other scriptures which indicate to me that there is such a thing as a spiritual gift that is not necessarily miraculous. That is a gift that is given to Christians, to individuals, by the Holy Spirit, but is not miraculous. There are several lists in chapter 12 that give examples of different kinds of miraculous gifts. The gift of tongue speaking, prophecy, interpretation of tongues, knowledge, wisdom, faith, and so on. It seems from a big, big picture perspective that the Corinthian Christians were giving an unfair and illegitimate favoritism toward those members who were given the gift of tongue speaking, which we'll discuss in just a moment. But in this first section, his point is to demolish that idea and replace it with the truth. Secondly, prophecy. The Old Testament is, of course, full of examples of men who were called prophets of God, men like Elijah, Isaiah, Zechariah, etc., Furthermore, in the New Testament, it also has several examples of prophets such as Agabus and others. And from the lives of these men and their work, we can gain some insight, at least, as to what the gift of prophecy actually included. And pooling these resources into one cohesive statement may take some time and study. But at the end of the day, nearly all conservative and even most liberal scholars agree on what a prophet is in the biblical sense of the term and therefore what the gift of prophecy most likely included. The Lexham Bible Dictionary includes several definitions, but this is one that I found to be the most helpful. It says, prophecy is an oral divine message mediated through an individual that is directed at a person or people group and intended to elicit a specific response. And for a helpful summation of many of the purposes and goals of prophecy, I would direct those who are interested to that entry in the Lexham Bible Dictionary. And also there's a book written by James E. Smith called Biblical Prophetism, which I also found helpful in this study. Third is tongues. That's the third term in our glossary. In Acts chapter 2 and verse, in, in chapter 10 as well, as well as several others, we read of instances where individuals and even groups of people were granted the gift of tongues. If we analyze these passages as a whole, I believe that it comes uh, abundantly clear what a tongue truly is. If it weren't for the unfortunate uh, early translations of the English Bible and the King James Version in particular, this really wouldn't be much of a problem altogether. But in the ancient Greek language, the native speakers used the term glotta as a way to describe a language, and that is the term we get our uh, modern word tongue from. But in most contexts, it's also referred to a foreign language, and this is the way that I think it is consistently used throughout the New Testament and especially in this chapter. Edification is our next term. It comes from the Greek word oikodome, which means to build up or to profit. And we should not mistakenly understand this term to be synonymous with teaching or, uh, on the other hand, uh, encouraging either one. And this is going to be a frequently used term that will be important to understand. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, understanding. 
I'm going to present a view of this word that not all agree with in this scholarly community, but I know that many in this audience will be familiar with it at least. In this chapter, without exception as far as I can tell, the word understanding does not necessarily refer to one's own understanding or comprehension or apprehension of what he is saying, but rather to the comprehension of the crowd, of the audience or the assembly to which he is speaking. And this is a most important concept to understand in Paul's argumentation. I think interpreting this passage uh, this way will make things much easier for us as we proceed in our exegesis. If you want to read a full defense of this definition of this word, then I would point you to a book by O. Palmer Robertson uh, that was recommended to me by many people over the years called The Final Word. That book is his case for uh, cessation of miracles and the end of the age of miracles, and he gives a rather a thorough look at these three chapters in the Corinthian letter. Now we're going to begin our exposition by reading verses 1 through 5 it'll come up. There we go. <clears throat> Verses 1 through 5. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries, but he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. He says in verse 1, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. The conjunction and in verse 1 is not really the best here. The King James Version first used this translation and the New King James Version followed suit. But many scholars note this seems to falsely equate love and spiritual gifts. In other words, one might misunderstand Paul to be saying that we ought to pursue both love for the brethren and miraculous gifts with an equal passion. But this is not viable given his previous discussion in chapter 13. Instead, I think we ought to take think of this verse as the NASB and the ASV put it. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. The meaning behind this is just this. We must first cultivate and pursue a love for each other and for the church. For without an attitude of love behind them, our spiritual gifts become useless like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. However, there is one gift in particular that Paul names of being, as of being of special importance. And again, from the context, we know that the Corinthians gave undue favoritism to the gift of tongue speaking. However, in this correction, Paul says that they ought to desire that they may prophesy and not speak in tongues. Beginning in verse 2, Paul sets out to prove this assertion, namely that the Christians ought to especially desire the gift of prophecy. And this may have been somewhat shocking to the brethren at Corinth because of their uh, preconceptions, but nonetheless Paul affirms uh, its truth by pointing out uh, those who speak in a tongue. It is of course difficult for us as 21st century readers to peel back the curtain of time over 2,000 years and reason about things that happened in the first century assemblies. But one thing that I believe this verse makes abundantly clear is that when the gift of tongue speaking was used in the early church, the words that were said were directed to 
God and were primarily about God Himself. In other words, these men spoke in a tongue, uh, were primarily giving praise to God, although it is not outside the realm of possibility that they also spoke of certain theological truths as well. And if we take this view, then the verse becomes, I think, much more intelligible. Essentially, when a brother would stand up in the assembly and speak in a tongue, he would give praise to God in a foreign language, possibly coupled with divine truth, or as verse 2 puts it, one who spoke in a tongue did not speak or seek to edify or teach men, but spoke directly to and about God. Also in verse 2, we find the first use of the word understand in this chapter, which again is referring specifically to the interaction and speech emanating forth from the speaker to the rest of the congregation. So when Paul says that no one understands the speaker, he means that no one in the believing assembly understands, and that's not the tongue speaker. Uh, he's not saying that the tongue speaker is just babbling nonsense and that no one in the world could understand, but that no one in the assembly understood. The final three verses of this section essentially expound upon the assertions of the first two. Paul makes his case that prophecy is to be regarded as more profitable in the church as a congregation than tongue speaking because it is with prophecy that all may be edified instead of just a single person. And the conclusion of the whole matter is in verse 5. As much as he wished all could speak in tongues, even more so he wished they all might prophesy because he who speaks, in, uh, he who speaks prophecy is greater, not inherently or universally, but rather because of his gift he is better able to benefit the congregation than the tongue speaker in the given context. With this information in his wake, the Apostle Paul is now prepared to move into a new section, what we're going to call section B, in his discussion which covers verses 6 through 19. Beginning with verses 6 through 8. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it, know, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? Here Paul seems to make an application of the principles regarding spiritual gifts given in chapters 12 and 13. Rees summarizes this section by saying, He who acts in harmony with those principles in chapters 12 and 13 will no longer exercise his gift when no one listening can understand what he is saying. In verse 6, Paul enumerates four ways in which a speaker may profit or edify his audience. He may speak by revelation, that is, he is revealing truth from God. He may speak by knowledge, that is, he may understand some of the mysteries of the faith concealed from men of uh, uh, previous ages. He may speak by prophesying, that is, to speak directly to a group of people, usually about a future event, although not exclusively. And finally, he may speak by teaching, which seems to be more in line with our modern conception of that term in the assembly. Paul was a master of predicting possible objections to his teaching, or, uh, and he does the very same thing here as he does in many other places by uh, addressing this hypothetical objector. He says, a hypothetical objector may say in response to him, to his teaching about spiritual gifts and about tongues, it is possible to speak in a tongue or make a sound that has no meaning or no sense to it and still edify or have some profit to it. 
And as a proof of this, the objector may look at musical instruments. Instruments may seem to make a noise and yet have no sense to them. But Paul, foreseeing this, takes this illustration and turns it against the objector. He says in McGarvey's words, If there be any place where sound without sense is apparently valuable or profitable, argues Paul, it will be found in the use of musical instruments. But even here, there are laws of cadence, modulation, harmony, etc., which form a veritable grammar. On the other hand, if a trumpeter is unable or unwilling to make a recognizable sound in his playing, then it is truly unprofitable. Now, I have some first-hand experience with what Paul is describing here. When I was in uh, the sixth grade, I joined the middle school band class, and I chose to play the trumpet, actually. And I was one of about five or six kids, I think, if I can remember correctly, who wanted to play the trumpet. And for the next year or so, believe me, there were some unintelligible sounds coming out of that instrument that I was playing. If Paul had heard me play the trumpet back then, he would have said, that's what I'm talking about. That's an uncertain sound. <clears throat> and if someone had heard what we as a group sounded like back then, they definitely would not have prepared for battle, like Paul says was the purpose of musical instruments. But that's exactly the point that he's making. Without some distinction in sound or understandable language, it becomes just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal with no meaning. So likewise, we're continuing on now in verse 9, So likewise, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, there are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance or meaning. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so, you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Once again, Paul says, words need to be easy to understand in verse 9. He does not mean that the words need to be simple or short syllables, but he means that the congregation ought to be able to discern the exact meaning of the words uh, one is saying without the aid of some miraculous knowledge. This may seem completely common sense to us today, but apparently it was not so with the uh, Corinthians. How simple is it to say that there are many different languages in the world that men may speak. And how much more simple is it to recognize that if you don't speak the language as the people in a given geographical or political region, then you are a foreigner to them and vice versa. This needs no explanation to us. And from what I can tell, this was equally obvious to these early Christians. Paul is not stating this fact to really teach them about what it means to be a foreigner for a language or a person to be foreign but rather to magnify and expose the ridiculousness and logical inconsistencies of their practices and abuse of tongues in the assembly. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say, Amen, at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God, with, I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. There are several points of interest in these verses, and to be honest with you, I found this section to be the most difficult of all to interpret. Once you weed out 
all the false assumptions and preconceptions about this chapter, though, and instead speak where the Bible speaks, I think a good framework can be established. But these verses, verses 13 through 19 in particular, give many commentators much trouble, and for good reason. I have to believe this is one of the passages that Peter was talking about when he said that some of the things Paul wrote about were hard to understand. He begins in verse 13 with a rather odd statement and then follows it up in verse 14 with an even more difficult phrase, at least it was to me at first. And we're going to work in reverse order. We're going to start in verse 14 where he says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Now given our previous definition of the word understanding, it having specific reference to the speaker being understood by the assembly, I think we can determine that Paul is saying that the one who is praying is not understood by his audience because he is speaking in a foreign language. However, the one who is speaking or leading the prayer, as we might say, does know what he is saying, although he may not be a native speaker of the language. McKnight, I think, has a good way of wording it in his paraphrase. He says, If I pray publicly in a foreign language that is not interpreted, my spirit, which understands, prays, but my meaning to the crowd or to the assembly in such a prayer is without fruit to the person who listens. Now read verse 13 in the New King James Version. He says, Therefore, let him speak, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Now a person might argue and rightfully so, if the person who is praying knows the meaning of the prayer, but the one who is listening does not, then why can't the one who is praying simply give the interpretation after the prayer is concluded? Why is there a need for an interpreter? Well, this was a question that puzzled me for some time, and again, I think McKnight gives the best explanation. This is a long quote, but he says, What the Apostle Paul meant by ordering the inspired person to pray in such a manner as that another might interpret his prayer was this. He who prayed in an unknown language was to do it by two or at the most by three at a time and in order. If there was no interpreter at hand, he was to be silent, even though he himself could have interpreted what he said. The reason for this is discussed in verse 28. Although the inspired person had been able to interpret the foreign language, he was here forbidden to do it because to have delivered the revelations first in the foreign language and then in the known language would have been an ostentation of inspiration which the church could not judge. Whereas when one, uh, when one sake of revelation, one spake of revelation in a foreign tongue and another interpreted what he spake, the church was edified not only by the things spoken thus made known to them by the interpreter, but also by having an undoubted proof of the inspiration of the person speaking in the tongue." End quote. That was a long quote, but I think helpful in understanding the difficulty in these two verses. If we take this interpretation of this passage, then many of the alleged difficulties of the following verses, I think, vanish and become much more simple. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. That is to say, I will pray and sing and teach so that all in the audience may understand and be edified along with myself. If I do not practice these principles in the assembly or otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, 
How will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks since he does not understand what you say? For indeed you give thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. As just a brief side note, I think verse 16 seems to be an indication that the early church practiced saying amen audibly at the end of the prayers that were led and that was offered as a sign that they agreed with and understood what was said in the prayer and this practice I think has been uh, to some degree neglected uh, by some in the modern assembly we may not be as impacted by the miraculous tongue speaking anymore and thus have need to display our understanding of what is being said but that doesn't change the fact that to neglect the practice of affirming our comprehension of the teaching, songs, and prayers, in particular by saying an audible amen, is ultimately to our detriment. But I, I digress. The next section, section C. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so, falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. We want to focus especially in this third section on verses 22 through 25. These verses help to bring out and bring together many of the loose ends thus far. Also, many of the lingering questions that we may have about how the early Christian assemblies functioned will be answered in these three verses. First, we want to notice Paul's use of Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. In the original context, the prophet Isaiah is predicting the captivity of Israel, and his focus is on the foreign nations and languages that would be involved in that captivity. Essentially, Isaiah's point is that the nation of Israel, God's chosen nation, or at least the northern ten tribes, had refused to hear the prophets that were sent speaking in their own language, sent by God to turn the people back to Him and to His commandments. So now, God was going to utilize a group or even an army and a nation of foreign lands and especially foreign languages to announce to the Israelites His displeasure with their lives. And Paul takes this concept and tells us that it was emblematic of what would happen in the New Testament era when the nations of the Gentiles were allowed into the kingdom of God itself and were used by Him to teach even the Jews at times. As an indication of this, the people of God would hear the wonderful works of God being spoken in the languages of the Gentiles, which would indicate to them that God was pleased to allow them into His kingdom. And this is, of course, exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost when the apostles were speaking in tongues. This was to demonstrate that the Holy Spirit had come upon them and that the kingdom of God had come into the world. Again, when Cornelius and his house were immersed in the Spirit and also began to speak in tongues, this was to demonstrate to Peter and to the other Jews with him that the Gentiles were also allowed into the kingdom. And it's my view that this same primary purpose was given for tongues throughout the New Testament. 
and in this passage at hand as well, unbelievers in the assembly were convinced that, they, that what they were witnessing was truly God-ordained because of the unmistakable miracle of tongue-speaking happening before them in their very own language. And this leads Paul to say in verse 22, Therefore, tongues are for a sign, and that, is not, that sign is not primarily for the benefit of believers, but for the unbelievers in the assembly or in the audience. And this should not surprise us because it is in keeping with what he said really all along, namely that prophecy is much more profitable for the church than tongue speaking. This much we have to admit, it's a clear Bible statement. But after reading those earlier arguments, a reader might ask, well, what then is the purpose and benefit of miraculous foreign languages? And Paul's answer is that they are a sign for unbelievers. There are, of course, many implications to be found in Paul's statement in verses 23 and 24. But for our purposes, we need only notice that the church, when assembled, came together in one place and not in multiple locales or in multiple rooms in the same locale, but in one gathering, in one room, and at one time. That's the implied context of all of Paul's statements in this chapter. In conclusion... We want to take a minute and look at just a few possible applications of the material in this discourse for the modern assembly. Most likely we won't talk about all of these applications, but hopefully we can get to a few of them and I'll list them for your consideration. As we mentioned in the introduction, this chapter is not intended to instruct us on how to run a bilingual or multilingual service and to treat it that way would involve, I think, a maligning of Paul's arguments. However. That does not change the fact that some, if not many, of the statements in this passage can help us to understand proper order in a service being conducted in multiple languages. For example, the final verse of this chapter says, Let all things be done decently and in order. By the use of that term, all, he seems to be a more general and inclusive word that is used to show that some of these principles could be applied to other situations. While we want to be careful and not over-apply Paul's statements, we also want to avoid under-application. With a bilingual service, obviously, things must be done in order and decently, as with all services, but also the teaching, the singing, and prayers ought to be understood by the congregation. This means that one brother ought to be able to interpret and give the understanding needed to those in the audience who don't understand. And honestly, outside of that, I do not personally see much more application that can be drawn from this chapter on the topic of uh, bilingual or multilingual uh, assemblies. And I don't say any of that to condemn anyone and from the assemblies that I have attended and our brotherhood when multiple languages have been spoken this has been the consistent practice and I applaud the leaders of those congregations for their uh, insights and application. Secondly, it's easily to, easy to notice that uh, time was specifically carved out in the early Christian assemblies and given to those who had the gift of prophecy and also tongue speaking when one was available to interpret. I'm about out of time, so I'm not going to pursue this application very much, but I think it for forces us to rethink and to at least analyze the way we have traditionally articulated the items of worship in that five-fold system that many of us have heard all of our lives. Perhaps we can un unpack that a little bit more in the, in the Q&A. And then third, as we mentioned in the introduction as well, the rapidly growing charismatic movement has vastly 
and I think negatively impacted the way many people interpret these chapters in 1 Corinthians. And a proper response, I think, needs to be formatted and given as a more biblically consistent alternative. Again, I don't have all the answers to that gigantic problem in the evangelical world, but I would be happy to discuss some more in the Q&A. And then finally, this last application, or I add this last application because it's come up several times in my young, very young preaching career, I find in this chapter several implications about the place of unbelievers in the modern assembly. First, it seems clear that unbelievers were allowed to enter the assembly and are even welcome to listen and to learn from what is said and what is done. This is a point that I think Gareth Reese, who I've quoted even in this presentation, uh, does not, seems to miss at least, arguing instead this passage does not imply such a thing, although he's not completely against the notion altogether. However, it does uh, seem that unbelievers were allowed in the assembly, but that was they were not allowed to speak or to give any sort of teaching or prayers or singing. Their place was singularly and primarily to learn in silence and be convinced and convicted. <clears throat> this concludes my presentation, and I'm going to put this next slide up here, uh, which has a few topics on it, which I didn't get to talk about. I didn't expect to talk about them in great detail. But if you wish to bring some of them up, we could discuss them in more detail. I don't have all the answers about these either. They're just interesting things that I found in my studies. And these aren't the only questions that may arise, but they were some, of some interest to me. So I'll leave these questions up for your consideration, and we can open for questions.